I was scared that I wouldn't do well. You know, like it was a complete fear of failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I am super pumped to interview today, Dr. Suzanne Bennett. And I hope you all listen to Tanya Elrod's interview, like a miraculous recovery from a massive heart attack. And Dr. Bennett was one of the physicians that took care of her. So welcome, Dr. Bennett. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. So do you want me to go by Dr. Bennett? Do you like, what, what do you prefer? Suzanne. Okay, good. I love that because also it's my mom's name and my sister's name. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I love your name. Um, Suzanne is the Associate Professor of Anesthesia at UC Health, also the Director of the Critical Division. And then, Suzanne, um, the ECMO piece. Will you explain that too? Sure. So um, ECMO, first I'll tell you what ECMO is. Just, Great. Just so because that, that's not a common language. It is in my, my household. But it's not a common language in everybody's household. So yeah. ECMO, ECMO, what it stands for, it's ECMO, but it stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And everybody's like, what is that? Anyway, that is essentially where we uh, have a the temporary bypass where blood is taken out of the body, sent through an artificial lung, let's say, and it pumps blood back into the body. And so... It works to replace the function of both the heart and the lungs, depending on why we use it. In Tanya's uh, case, it was solely to replace the heart's function because it, it wasn't functioning properly. And ECMO is typically a last resort? Oh, yes. It's a, it's, uh, when, when your heart is failing or your lungs are failing, ECMO is the, the last step. And if, if, we can't, uh, if the patient is not a candidate for ECMO, or if um, uh, we can't get them on ECMO, uh, often the next step is that they die. Yeah, and in in Tanya's case, that would have happened. Well, she and so she Tanya did. had died. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> multiple Tanya, times. Exactly, and uh, that last time is when we put her on ECMO, and and um, essentially in the moment of her heart stopping. We went ahead and emergently put her on ECMO. Amazing. Okay, but we're really not here to talk about her story the entire time. <laughs> we want to talk about your story, which listeners is fascinating. Um, okay, Suzanne, give us a little background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Sure. Um, so I'm from Milford, Ohio, which is a <gasps> suburb. <Stop. laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, yes. great. <laughs> Yeah, so Milford is a suburb of uh, Cincinnati in, in um, uh, uh, southwest Ohio. Um, actually came from a very, I mean, it's in Milford, but it was really Mount Repose. Okay, uh, and, small and town. We, yeah, real, totally small town. Um, and my family, actually the only real neighbors we had, and my, my true best friends at that time were the two neighbor boys. Um, uh, their father was a Baptist preacher. Um, and, um, my, and my brother, so I have a sister as well, but my brother and I were closer in age. And then 
these two boys were close in age with us. And it was essentially the four of us grew up in this little small area, which we believed was everything. Um, uh, and there was nothing else that you needed to do except for go to church. Um, and then school kind of interfered with our ability to uh, do what we needed to at home, which was play, build forts, um, build fires, walk through the creek, catch crawdads. Oh my gosh. Uh, can't, couldn't catch the frogs. Uh, they were too quick. And, uh, <laughs> but we dreamt of it. So were you kind of a tomboy? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Actually, I, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, I didn't wear a shirt for a long period of time because the boys didn't wear shirts. Yeah. And it, there came a time where my mother had to have a talk with me, um, about how I couldn't do this anymore. I was devastated. Oh my gosh. Um, how old? we would, Oh, well, it was elementary school, but I bet it was, <laughs> I'm embarrassed. It was probably third grade. I mean, I was, this was like, this is how the we live. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were your parents, what did your parents do? So uh, my dad was a journeyman lineman uh, for, a, he contracted with, uh, you know, it was CG&E back then, but it was, he, it was a journeyman lineman. Um, and if you go back through the times, there were times where he got laid off which then forced my mother, my mother had been, uh, had been trying to stay at home when uh, my brother and I were younger, but then she had to go back to work because just because we needed the money. Yeah. And um, in that time, my dad uh, developed a, a little business on the side of uh, trimming trees and uh, doing the tree work, which he, he uh, named um, uh, Milford Tree Service. And, wow. uh, and then, so he did that and then he ended up going back to work. And what ended up happening is my mom stayed working. My dad still had the business. He did it on the weekends. And then he, uh, of course, did his uh, Monday through Friday job uh, with, uh, as a lineman, um, working on pole. So, so um, first of all, working on trees is like high risk taking behavior. It is. Yeah. It's big time. I mean, that's big time. It is. I don't, I don't do, think people and, realize that, but it, it is. No. Yeah. And and also working on the, you know, high voltage lines. Um, he essentially, he, he would make us drive around and he would show us all the different lines he put up um, with oh. his crew. And um, uh, that was, both of those were high risk jobs because you're, you know, working with high voltage and up in, up in the air, you're working in all types of weather. And then of course, climbing those trees and, and doing what he did. So, uh, so, did you always know you wanted to go into medicine? <laughs> um, yes. There were moments, though, where I thought I was going to be an archaeologist um, because I loved collecting fossils. Um, mm. That was, uh, I could spend hours walking through rocks and creeks and trying to look for fossils. Uh, collected several arrowheads in our, and just in our little area that we lived. Right. So, um, uh, but then I, quickly veered back to my desire for medicine. And, um, you know, so my, my brother was uh, diagnosed as a di diabetic at the age of 18 months. Uh, I was four months old at the time. So um, the medicine, it was kind of, a, it was kind of a weird time, you know, where I was introduced to the shops and it, to measure his blood sugar, he, he had to pee in a cup and we had to do the dipsticks and wow. that was how we would, right. Yeah. It was, it was a kind of very different time. Um, and there were several times where he would have, um, an insulin where he would become, so his blood sugar would drop. So, yeah. 
we called it low on blood sugar. That was our, our term for it. And uh, he would have to go back into the hospital. Things were very different then. So, yeah. you know, we didn't have the rescue meds that people have now. Or the pumps, right? And the pumps. You know, it's amazing that he's as healthy as he is now. Um, it's been, you know, 50 years. And he's um, doesn't have any of the ill effects that come with diabetes. And that's really a testament to my mother. Um, and then and her um, uh, very obsessive desire to really meet the, the goals that were outlined. Um, and then finally, it became my brother's just stubborn. And he wouldn't, the doctors were telling him to keep his blood sugar much higher than uh, he felt good. Yeah. And so he, he insisted on keeping it very, very low. And I think in the end, that's really what helped him to be so healthy now. So. Yeah. Um, and you guys were really close in age. Yeah. You're yeah, Irish we twins, were. basically. <laughs> Right. right, exactly. And so th- a little bit of that. Um, and I also enjoyed caring for my neighbor. My neighbors had great Danes and um, the dogs had puppies. They would, you know, you know, I guess they sold them. I didn't realize what was happening, um, except for I knew when they had the puppies, I would go sit to ensure that the runt uh, got fed, um, that they got, oh you know, <laughs> it was so, so cute. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in that this little shed area where they, you know, had given birth and we're keeping them back there. So, so um, your trajectory to become an MD, a physician, was not traditional because no, you became a nurse first, yes. right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. I love to hear that story. Sure. It's kind of so, like an old um, ER episode. Remember <laughs> her? I forget. Yeah, her. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so how, how it went is I, when I was 17, uh, at that point in time, um, my parents were divorced. I was living with my mother um, and um, her income, you know, women, that, you know, we talked about the salary difference between men and women now. Back then it was, um, it was ridiculous. And uh, she made about $18,000 a year. Oh my God. Um, and so I had to work in high school. That wasn't yeah. really an option. Yeah. Um, so at the age of 17, I became a nursing assistant in a nursing home. Negotiated this crazy deal that they would pay me $100 for every weekend in addition to my hourly wage uh, for the commitment to work 12 hours on Saturday and Sunday every weekend. And so I did that. And I didn't have to work during the week. Uh, I would pick up occasionally, but I didn't have to do it. And so I worked 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in a nursing home in Milford. And uh, that was my first real introduction to nursing stuff. Uh Um, And uh, really enjoyed it. And then when I went to college, I had to stay here. I didn't, I really didn't know what, I was the first one to go to college in my family. Okay. And uh, really didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to get to that next step of college. The counselors uh, weren't as savvy back then as they are now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, even when I took the ATT, I didn't know what I was taking. I just knew that one day I had to show up to school and take this test. I, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, so anyway, I went to, I ended up applying to UC, uh, nowhere else, because I knew I wanted to stay home with, I want to make sure my mom was okay. She was single at the time. Um, and I also had that great job. Right. Yeah. Where I was making some, it was really, it was like bank. Right. I mean, it was, <laughs> and, um, 
and I didn't have to do fast food or anything like that. I did do all that up until that point, right? Yeah. I did crazy stuff. I mean, yeah, drive through I won't ever do again in my life. I pity I those people. That. Oh, it's, it was awful. It was awful. I felt so bad. Sometimes I just gave away free stuff because I, I couldn't, the cash register broke or whatever. I'm like, just take it, just take it. Um, anyway, so uh, applied to UC. Got in, really didn't have a major at that point because I didn't know how to do it. Um, so I just started taking classes that were necessary to, to get to the next step. During that time, I recognized a few things. Um, I wanted to go to, I know I, at that point I was very determined to go to med school. Um, I also realized that financially this would create a burden for my, for my family. Yeah. Because uh, at that time, we, I had gotten some scholarships and the scholarships were kind of running out. Yeah. And um, I, I knew that uh, I would buy my own books and I did all my own, you know, I paid for my car and my insurance, but the, um, the next step of med school, I was very concerned that I would not be able to, uh, my family would be, create such a big burden. Yeah. So my decision was then to, uh, I enjoyed what I was doing in the nursing home and I talked to some nurses there and I like, why don't I just switch my major from biology and uh, go on and do nursing, which is what I ultimately did. And uh, my thought was that I could go, I could become a nurse. And then when I, when I went to med school, I could pay for my, my stuff, you know, work right. as a nurse and pay for what I needed to as I went along. Um, anyway, so I ended up, you know, becoming a nurse, got it at that point in time when I was, when I graduated, the, you know how there's a nursing shortage now? Yeah. Well, there wasn't. There was not one then. <laughs> it was tough to find a job as a nurse. Okay. It's hard to be, It's very hard to believe. Yeah, that, that is tough. not a world that I'm used to. Yeah. And so again, I was going to stay in Cincinnati um, due to just where I had. I could. I couldn't think beyond where I was, um, except for a, I interviewed for a job in Columbus, Indiana, and uh, that was the only one I could find. By the way. My gosh. And yeah, and it was on an oncology floor. And I'm like, well, I mean, I could do this, you know, I don't know if I like it or not. In the meantime, I heard of this critical care internship program at Christ Hospital, but they had done all the interviewing already um, and it was closed. And I'm like, you know, I'll try to reach out and see if I can, you know, they'll even consider me. And, and they did. I sent my stuff over and they gave me an interview like it was an exception interview. And uh, then I got the job and I ended up, you know, doing this critical care internship program over at Christ. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, I recommend, you know, I know, I'm sure they're still doing it. I know yeah. UC does, does a little bit of this, but um, that's really what inspired me to go on and do critical care. So I got rid of my job at the nursing home and took on the critical care at Christ. Christ. So let me ask you a question. Is it common where people can't afford, like if they want to go to medical school, but can't afford to do it and people go into nursing? No, no, it's not. No, no. It's, it was kind of a convoluted course. Now, hindsight, now, now that I know what I know, um, people get loans and they just go into debt for med school. Uh, like significant debt. Yeah, right. Of course. And, Tons of people do right. that now. But back then. I didn't know that. I just didn't know it. I, it was, I was so naive to how and to your navigate. your parents didn't know either. No, 
my sister, my brother, my parents, nobody knew. Oh, wait, so you I have was a sister of, too? I don't think I, I do. Knew. Yeah. Wait, did you say yeah. that before? No, yeah, maybe. She's, old, oh, she's, she's older. older than me. Yeah. Okay. And um, um, I love her dearly. She's one of my best friends. But uh, back then, her, our age gap was challenging because I bothered her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And What's the age difference? Uh, about nine years. Nine years. Wow. That's a pretty yeah. big difference. Yeah. Okay. So I'm dying to know, um, did your brother take over Milford Tree Service? Like what happened to <laughs> Milford Tree Service? So my dad ended up selling that business to another, uh, a guy that he had been working around with and had, okay. the guy, that guy had started with him and went off and started his own business. My dad sold it uh, because his work became, uh, he was working so much. He couldn't yeah. do both. And he, yeah. he felt like that was, so my brother ends up taking the same, he goes into the same uh, work that my dad does. Okay. And he still does that. He's up in Detroit okay. Uh, okay. doing that work. Okay. So. Um, all right. I was just curious about that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So you're at Christ Hospital. You're doing that program. Yes. And then you get, they, do they, they give you a job there? Absolutely. Yeah. So I get a job in the ICU there and, at that point in time, uh, about a year later, I have my first child. Yeah. Um, Tell everybody how many kids you have. I have five boys. I love it. Um, <laughs> I have my first first child, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life uh, yes. because I wanted to go to med school, and now I've got this this child, and and I'm like, I don't I don't know what I, I don't know what to do. So I start doing these crazy things. I start taking all these exams. So I did something called a CTRN, um, which is uh, where it's a critical care nurse thing to say that you're certified in critical care. So I did that. Yeah. I just started making, you know, checkboxing all these things. And, and I, I love that job, by the way, it was one of my, it was my favorite job. Um, I, when I left it, I, I cried when I put my resignation in, which was funny because I was going off to residency at that point. Um, <sighs> <laughs> you know, I, I kept my nursing license forever until I finished med school. Oh my gosh. Um, in, in case like something in case I failed or something, you know, yeah. like in med school. Right. Um, and so I, uh, then I started, I, I took the GMAT. I took all these um, entrance exams to go on and um, do something different. And uh, my husband said, you know, uh, and he was, he was a, at this point he was a resident at UC in your, in urology. Okay. He's like, he's like, you've always, what you said you wanted to go to med school. Why are you not taking that exam? And I'm like, I was scared that I wouldn't do well, you know, like yeah. I did, I, it was a complete fear of failing, you know, and, and not, I didn't, you know, I'm like, yeah, of course I want to go to med school. He was like, just take it. So he bought me a book of practice questions and I just started pounding away on those, which was challenging because I was working full time and I had my son. Right. Yeah. And, um, he, and, and my husband was a, re a resident. So he was no, there were no 80 hour work week rules at this time. Like he was yep. working 120, he would sleep at dinner. Um, oh it was crazy. And so I ended up taking the, the entrance exam called the MCAT. And oh, at the time I knew I needed to stay in town, right? So I could only apply to one med school. Oh my God, UC. <laughs> yes. And, uh, um, and because I knew I had my family here, he had his family here. Um, and if we didn't, um, uh, I, I couldn't go anywhere else. I mean, how could I do that? Right. 
And so um, I took this test knowing I had to crush it or I wouldn't get accepted, right? Um, anyway, so I did well enough. I was like, well, gosh, I did well enough. I can't believe this, you know? And so I applied to med school. And when we, when we were, when I was applying, we're like, well, do we want to have any more kids because it's going to get complicated here as if it weren't already. And, uh, how old are you at this point? Uh, 28, maybe 28. I don't know. Yeah. Um, 27, 28. Uh, yeah, I'd say about that age. And, um, uh, so I, you know, I put in my application and then we're like, well, we should probably try to have another child before you start med school because doing it through med school and residency is going to be really hard. So yeah, ended up, um, getting pregnant. Then the interview started, right? Mm-hmm. I got an interview, which was like a total score. I was like, yes, you know, like this is, this is amazing. You know? Um, oh, I was also the nurse manager of the ICU at this point. Oh my God. So you weren't just an individual contributor. Okay. You never do, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I was the nurse manager and, um, and I was, I loved my job. Um, and so I, you know, took the, uh, got, got the interview done. I was pregnant and I never told them I was pregnant. Oh my God. Um, and there was a, there was a concern in my head, uh, whether real or not, that being a nurse, being pregnant and female, that they may not want, accept me right. in the med school. So I didn't tell anybody that I was pregnant and I hid it. And, you know, like I, and I really tried to downplay the nursing component um, because I, I had heard, again, I don't know if this is true, right? I had heard that they frowned on nurses going to med school. So I didn't, I downplayed that through the interviews um, and really tried to just emphasize everything else that I could, my academics and, you know, everything. I didn't even tell them I was married or anything uh, or I, or that I had kids. I just kept that out. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I can remember, I mean, I remember the day I got the letter saying I got accepted um, into UC. It was, it was like surreal. Um, of course, like, you know, I told my husband, tried to tell my son, he was too young. He's a toddler. He didn't understand. <laughs> we were, and we were, this is actually cool. We were at the time we were living in my, um, the house that I grew up in. My father had bought the house, you know, you know no the family. Yeah. Yes. The, the family behind us who had the two boys, yes. they had more than two boys, but they had sold their house to my father and he moved back there and that we bought the, the old house that we grew up in and we were living in that. It was a teeny, teeny little house, one bathroom. Um, but it had a fenced yard and it was, it was great for kids. Yeah. Um, and I think honestly at this time now we had two puppies, um, named Simba and Nala. Um, Lion King time. <laughs> yes, yeah. Lion King time. Yeah. Um, because it was going to be quote unquote, so great for, for, for the kids, right. To have dogs. Right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's see, where are we? So anyway, I, I had to make a decision. Was I going to accept the uh, med school that I had so desired? Or I was on a really great path of um, nursing, you yeah. know, and, and, and 
I could totally see opportunities for advancing in nursing uh, into, into greater leadership opportunities. Anyway, after much discussion and um, really a lot of my own thoughts and trying to work through it, uh, we decided to go on and, and do med school. Um, at that point, I when I went into med school, I dropped my, uh, I stayed working as a nurse at Christ in yeah. the ICU there. Um, and I, I dropped to what's called PRN or as yes. needed. Yeah. Um, it would flex up and down depending on what my schedule was for med school. Had my second son two months before I started med school. So had him in June and then I entered med school in August. Oh my God. Oh my we God. really, we really didn't have a babysitter until I was starting med school on Monday and we finally found one on Thursday before. <laughs> we so, were flying. Okay, so I just have a couple <laughs> questions. One, is your light have you always had the like a big capacity to, to do a lot of work? Yeah. Sounds yeah, yeah. and do you still are you still working that many hours a week? I I'm I'm kind of a diehard. Okay. I, I do. I work hard. I you I work, I, work hard. I well, I I don't require a lot of sleep. I do try to sleep. How many hours um, of sleep? I definitely try to get four. What? That's that's all you need? I need four in a row. <laughs> but I'll if I if I can get more, I will. Um, but if uh, I'll, it's a, like a mandatory in my mind. Like if I'm up and it's, I could. Like I'm sorry, I could never live on four. I'm sorry. I don't think I ever have on purpose. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And so, do you drink a lot of caffeine? Uh, no. No, I don't really drink caffeine. I don't drink, I've never drank coffee. Oh my God. Okay. And then secondly, I, when I think about ICU, I think of, um, and this is, this is not going to be a nice stereotype. So just bear with me on this. It's all good. Because you are not the stereotype, but I typically think of humans who they are taking care of people who are asleep. And they're not having to do a, a whole lot of bedside manner um, connecting with patients. That's the opposite of you. You are, yes. because when, when I was searching for a doctor to interview, I specifically said, I want to make sure that they can be authentic and vulnerable and, um, you know, not putting um, a facade up at times. You're right. Yeah. No. So... Did you know that you wanted to do ICU or did, or, okay, so now it's critical care, but, which I guess is the same thing as ICU. I think totally right? the same thing. Yeah. I mean, did you ever want to be more patient interaction or no? <laughs> no, so that's just a great question. I love, I love that you see it as uh, the patients are asleep and you could argue I'm an anesthesiologist. And so right. Patients, <laughs> oh my God. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And so, um, let's, you know, in anesthesiology, the, I have, you know, between five and 15 minutes to develop a rapport with a patient and their family oh. before they put their lives in my hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's I mean, a it's a big deal. deal. People come in and, you know, you, people in healthcare may take it for granted that, they're coming in for, you know, elective surgery or even a big surgery. You know, I cover the liver transplant uh, patients mm -hmm. um, in the OR, in the operating room. 
and I don't care if they're having, you know, like a small, small surgery, you know, or if, um, you know, maybe they're having a nasal surgery or if they're having a liver transplant, I, I treat them the same mm-hmm. because it's that person, that patient's experience coming into it is, is huge. I mean, they will be asleep and it's still to them very, very life threatening in their mind. They're nervous. They're scared. Right. And, um, and, um, I want to connect with them and their families to one gain their trust, but actually be able to allow them to recognize that I'm, I'm just, as I sometimes say, I'm just a simple anesthesiologist from Milford, right? <laughs> yeah. Good try. <laughs> no, but I am. I'm just, I, it's, I, it blows my mind at times that anyone would feel intimidated by me as a doctor because I don't feel that way. I, I feel like I'm a person just like they're a person. Yeah. I mean, I have a mother, I have a brother, you know, I have, I have, and none of these people are in medicine. So right. I, I, you know, uh, it connecting with Did them is very important. Did anything change with your family when you went into this? <laughs> um, well, one, they had to understand that I couldn't always do what, what we had always done. We're very tight family. And, you know, even though my parents are uh, divorced, we're a very tight family. We get together for all the holidays. We uh, do all the things that, you know, a Midwestern family does. Um, and so uh, I missed so many things, you know, going through medical school and residency. And they had to understand that I couldn't necessarily go to everybody's little birthday party or the Christmases and the Thanksgivings and that I'm on call and I have to do the different things. So um, they're very understanding. And then the other side of this is that they always have questions like, you know, Hey, Hey, I've got this problem. The worst one. Oh, the oh, worst is when, oh my God. I love that so much. <laughs> the worst is when they have a friend from church or their friend group who has someone in the hospital who has a problem. And then they've asked my mother or my father or my sister or someone to ask me right, what right. I th- what I think, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, I haven't looked at their chart. I have no idea. It's not just a simple, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That that would yeah. make sense. Of course, they're going to ask you all those things. And right. You do miss things, right? Yeah. 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 A lot, tons. You have no idea. I mean, uh, so uh, first to go back to the ICU component, um, patients are either sedated or in a state of being uh, woken or uh, awake. And then they also have their family members who are going through extremely tough times. Yeah. Um, And, you know, recently with the coronavirus and and how we deal with all of this was really challenging, but um, in the ICU, I feel it's even more important to just sit down and talk and listen. Yeah. Have um, you had any COVID patients? Oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, yes. <laughs> um, and we've had um, several on ECMO. Um, just, you know, how Tanya was on ECMO. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. If there's one thing that you think um, would be good for you to share with our listeners that would help them in some way. What is that? That's a tough question. Um, 
you know, I, I think everybody, everybody, whether it's a doctor or um, a nurse or um, anybody that's in a professional setting where a patient or their family are definitely vulnerable, um, need to recognize that uh, we have stories too. Mm-hmm. And um, we we certainly um, we're human. We're human. And um, a- as a doctor, we do our best to. I mean, every day we walk in, we try to do our best. We give everything. We give literally everything we have um, to our patients and our families. So, um, has COVID impacted? Your family at home, because a, a friend of mine uh, who lives in San Francisco, her friend is a a doc, and she noticed that she kept coming home every night after work and like bleaching things and washing hands, like a lot of things. And then it, her kids started doing it a little bit obs- obsessively, and she was like, "My God, I'm sort of rubbing off on them." Yeah. Um. So uh, where it really affected, so uh, fast forward from, you know, when I was going through med school, when I got through all of it, uh, my husband and I decided to uh, split and um, we are very close friends and uh, certainly take a a shared approach in our children. And um, he's he's a urologist, like I said, so uh, he's not in the ICU setting or the critical care setting. And his interaction with COVID patients is limited, maybe maybe zero. <laughs> yeah. And um, and my boys uh, now, um, uh, yeah, I have one that's in college at USC in California, and one who's grown and out. Um, and then I have uh, others that are that were either in high school or middle school as as uh, th- through last spring and um, they when I they knew that I was literally caring for all of the COVID patients and that was a scary time mm-hmm. and um, they we all decided that it was the right thing until we, uh, we got all that the, the PPE which by the way nobody knew what PPE was you until know, now <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. now and now it's like part of our vernacular Exactly. And, you know, I, I had to keep telling my mom to stop asking me about PPE. Um, <laughs> I'm like, please stop. Um, anyway, until we could sort through that and really understand the disease and the spread and yeah. what worked and what didn't work, the boys um, didn't come didn't come over. And they stayed with their oh. father for weeks. We would do some FaceTime. But I was working at that time upwards of 16 to 18 hours a day trying to uh, either get, make sure my teens were safe, you know, that we were really doing what was right for the, my, my colleagues, my, the nurses, the doctors that we work with. And, and then um, <clears throat> at the same time, trying to make sure we were giving the right care to the patients. Um, yeah. It was, it was hard. That was a hard time. Um, and so I think if nothing else during that time, what affected our family the most was the isolation that we did with each other. And, um, you know, it really brought us closer because now it's, you know, we kind of celebrate each other, you know, we really, yeah. uh, you know, we, we always do dinner together. Um, but like, you know, even at this moment, they, they're cooking. And uh, I know you guys, Suzanne said before we started, Oh, I've got to get in a quiet room because the kids are down making chicken parm. 
right? Is that right? <laughs> yes. Chicken parm? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And again, like I said, they're boys, but they've become incredible chefs as a result of coronavirus because we weren't going out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, they all chip in and cook and dice and prep. Um, you know, some of, some of them we call the sous chefs. Those are the younger ones. Yeah. Love that. Uh, Cuties. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, you know, I, I, I am remiss because I did not, I kind of like spaced out about the COVID thing for you. Can I ask you a couple more questions about that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, It was was a big deal. Why are we better now? We know more. We know more. We entered, well, it entered us, right? It it came to us. We, We didn't enter. Um, but we found ourselves in a very scary situation with not much information and um, with with reports out of other countries of just death and people overrunning ICUs and um, our standard therapies reportedly didn't work, right? Um, and in New York, you know, when New York was yeah. really, you know, and so, you know, if nothing else, uh, or I think how the state of Ohio responded saved us, and I mean the collective us, um, from what New York and others experienced because we never had a time we had a, we had a disaster plan in place. Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. Like we we spent weekends and nights walking around trying to make sure if we didn't have enough beds to care for the patients, how could we make more? Where would we put them? Um, and uh, including, you know, do the, that they're, they're talking about a tent downtown and it's yeah, just different. I, I heard maybe like the convention center or something. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, and uh, uh, we ended up not having that problem where we were overrun with uh, too many patients. However, it really, you know, our hospital essentially shut down from elective stuff. Right. Um, and so in the midst of all this, um, we are working extremely hard and I had to stay happy and positive for my, for, for my people, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> for the people around me, um, and, and try to offer reassurance at a time where I wasn't completely sure we were in a good place. You know, like, and you guys were getting information from New York and other countries around what was going on there. Did they have any, like meetings is the wrong word, but like reports out or did it all go through the CDC or how did you guys get information? <laughs> um, a lot from the CDC. Um, and then, but we started forming these connections um, okay. with people. I'm in critical care. We, and I ended in with dealing with ECMO. Uh, we ended up getting on uh, chats, doing zoom calls with mm-hmm. people from uh, at this point. Now it's people from all over the, the world. Um, and have developed friends in all the other countries and shared ideas, shared experiences, um, shared our wins, you know, when patients did well and how we did it. Um, it was all, we call it anecdotal at that time hmm. because um, we didn't have evidence, no literature. And, and then as literature is coming out, it's all, you, you don't want to, change your practice based on literature that's so recent um because it's not randomized we do randomized right, right, controlled right. stuff yeah and um so you're doing your best to sort through what's being published and then at the same time 
trying to do what you know. When did you realize that it was a big deal? Like, what was your first experience with it? I'm guessing it was probably with a patient. Mar- it was in March. Um, uh, we really became, yeah, we started seeing patients. Um, and I think our, let me see, let me think. So I think our first ECMO patient might have been, um, oh no, our first ECMO patient um, was so sick at an outside hospital and we weren't sure we could get him to our hospital safely to get him on ECMO. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, we, that was, that was very big. The, you know, going back in time, as you remember, our testing was not right. It was taking five to seven days to get results. Right. And but so, do you remember, other, so that was the first patient that you knew? That was the first ECMO patient. We started getting patients in, in the, in our ICUs mm-hmm. that it was taking five to seven days to get the test results. So we had to treat all of them as though they were positive. Okay. Until, and so, you know, nurses were wearing, everybody was, you know, having to wear all the garb all yeah. the time. And so, and of course we cohorted them in, in certain spots in the hospital to ensure that in different, you know, in ICUs to ensure that we were was not it, spreading it. Was it somewhat reminiscent of AIDS coming out in the eighties where people just didn't really know? Yeah, um, it's very so that it was very similar to that. Now, of course, I was not, I wasn't in. I was, I think, I was in um, working in the nursing home at that point, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't wear gloves in the nursing home. That was a time where you know there were no gloves. Right. We just it's took crazy. care of people with bare yeah. hands. Um, but yeah, the fear is what what you're referencing. Right, the fear of the unknown really drove. Uh, the emotional experience. There were people who just, because of their own health concerns, couldn't take, wouldn't take care of those patients, even because we just didn't know. And so did you guys, from a leadership standpoint, say, okay, who's in, sort of who's, who's out? So we developed so many SOPs, as we call them. Mm-hmm. Um, Standard operating procedure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we created so many so fast. Yeah. Um, and, and they were really live working documents as we gained more information. Sure. Um, and then the, the health collaborative came together. So all the hospitals in our region were working oh. together um, to ensure that we were all delivering the same standard care to the people in our community. Yeah. Um, Do you remember when, when you, when your first COVID patient died? Um we were fortunate enough to have very few die. Good. Yeah. Um, and so really our, uh, in, in my world, we have two different ICUs. Um, of course, I remember it was an elderly uh, lady who died. Um, and I remember all of us sharing in that experience. Yep. Um, it happened later than what we, what was being reported by other places. You know, it, it that probably wasn't until May. That we had our first death. Good. And yeah. you attribute that to things that happened in the state of Ohio. Masks, yeah. social distancing. Yep. The response we had allowed us to care for our patients the way that they should be cared for. Um, we, we never felt as though we were not delivering the standard of care. Yep. You know, and, and, you know, I, I keep, I, you want to say we were lucky, but we weren't lucky. We were smart. We were smart. So, 
Well, um, thank you. Yes. For always taking care of us, even when we're asleep. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for being on the show today. I know it's going to be great for our listeners to listen to Tanya's episode and then yours, because then they see like that full story, right? And that connection of the behind the scenes along with that, because um, I know the ECMO piece is a big deal. I was talking to somebody about it the other day and they were like, if somebody's on ECMO and lives and uh, that's a really, that's an, that's an amazing feat because ECMO is the very last thing and yeah. you guys kept her alive. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we did, but uh, you know, she had such an amazing family and the support that also comes with it that, yeah. that creates, that supports her inner drive to live as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, so all the people thing. praying for her too, she was telling me about amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was, it, it was, you know, I would like to say this only happens rarely, but unfortunately we see many patients that, um, require this level of rescue mm-hmm. therapy. Um, and, uh, she, she just, she came out of it amazing. Her heart recovered. She's, she's what we want all of our patients to be. And, uh, recover to be um like i said it was yes it was all of us working together in concert to make sure that she got the best care that she could but it was also her family and her her personal drive to to live uh she obviously had had a purpose that she still needed to fill (laughs) oh that's a perfect ending all right thank you all right thank you so much Hey listeners, so when I first started the podcast, I wasn't sure where it would take me. I just knew I was meant to do it. Don't ask me why or how, but I just knew. And starting it three years ago, I wondered how else can I use what I learn in those episodes and teach others? Well, Move Forward Group Coaching takes our guests' best practices the Enneagram assessment to tap into personal motivations. We teach you how to turn around your limiting beliefs. We use neuroscience's methods to create new habits. You will create a one to three year move forward plan. So if you are ready to get unstuck and face your fears and move forward, this 10 week program is just for you. For more information, you can go to our website at failforwardpod.com. I want to thank our sponsor, HealthCarousel, and everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at failforwardpod.